Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Welcome to episode number 328 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about finding tennis gold in tennis losses. Uh, just regular gold. Finding gold in tennis losses. Added an extra tennis in there. Looking forward to this a lot. Uh, this outline came together for me in a really exciting way, and I can't wait to share it with you. I learned quite a bit in putting this together, and I'll, I'll let you know exactly which part of that this was. Well, actually, pretty much this whole outline. This is why I love this show and why I love our students, I love our followers, because this kind of back and forth, t- today's question, today's um, topic comes to us from one of our students, a, a multiple, uh, a repeat VIP student, somebody who's traveled to work with us several times. And before we get to her question, really quickly, I want to thank two people that left a review of the Essential Tennis Podcast on the iTunes Music Store. The first one is Snowqualmie Mom, I think, Snowqualmie. Mom, thank you, and Tennis Dentist, who I may need to speak to at some point in the future. Thank you both so much for your reviews, your ratings. I appreciate it very much. And by the way, if you're not already subscribed to the Shankcast, just go do yourself a favor and go do that if you haven't checked it out. We just uploaded a brand new episode of the Shankcast where we talked about sandbagging and tennis. We had a special guest, and you... If you've been following Essential Tennis, you probably know who this person is, and we talk about uh, sandbagging in tennis. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts, type in Shankcast, and and you'll see it. Go check out that that episode. So today's topic comes to us from, as I said, a repeat VIP student of Essential Tennis Coaches. This person wrote to me and said, Hi, Ian, if possible... Please keep the subject of how to deal with losses and take something positive out of a loss in mind for a possible podcast. I just had a loss for our league, and as usual, I'm questioning everything about tennis as much as I love it. I know I'll be over it in a couple of days, but still, thanks. And I can relate. I I can relate to that feeling. And if you're listening right now and you've been playing tennis for years or decades, then you know you know that feeling. We invest a tremendous amount of our energy and our time and our, our passion, our enthusiasm, our effort into the game. And so when it doesn't work out the way we want, it can be super disappointing. And you see results you know, on TV, players who lose and they're, you know, totally crushed and they're, you know, crying and and so I think that's kind of something that, to a certain degree, kind of we all share and it's kind of a common thread through our experience in tennis. And part of the reason why it mirrors life is there's really high highs and sometimes there can be really low lows. But I think for those of us who aren't on TV and who are amateur athletes who play because we love it, I think our perspective needs to be a little bit different than people who are playing it full-time as a career. And on the surface, it's easy to say, oh yeah, of course, Ian, obviously I'm not out there competing for a paycheck. I'm not out there competing for a Wimbledon trophy. And so on the surface, it's easy to just agree with that. But I'm going to share some stats with you here that I think are going to be very eye-opening. And then I'm going to also share some very practical steps on how you can uncover 
those golden nuggets in your losses and come away feeling satisfied even when you lose. That's my goal for you. And I honestly believe that if you take to heart what you hear today, then you will be able to experience that. Now, remember, when you play a tennis match, somebody is going to lose. Every time you step out there, it's basically a coin flip. You're either going to win the match or you're going to lose the match. And as such, tennis is somewhat unique in that regard, in that, at least in singles, it's just you, one other person, it's man-on-man, woman-on-woman combat, you're out there very much on a stage, playing in front of everybody, there's a lot of pressure, and the stakes are high, there's potential to lose every time you walk out onto the court, and because of that, losing is just a natural part of tennis. And so in preparing for this episode, I looked up some stats. Well, first of all, in a micro sense, if you've heard, I'm sorry, I didn't look up what episode, episode with Craig O'Shaughnessy, the tennis analyst who works with Novak Djokovic. I had him on the show a couple months ago. And one of his articles, that's my favorite, he dissects the success of Rafael Nadal on clay, where He's won just about every time he's entered the tournament. He's won the tournament. He's only lost two times in his entire career. Two matches out of, I don't remember how many matches. It's a ridiculous record. He's won over and over and over again on that surface. And yet, in a micro sense, from point to point to point, it's almost a coin flip. He has won at the French Open, not across his entire career, but just at the French. He's won 50. 57, excuse me, percent of his points at the French Open, only 7% away from a coin flip. How ridiculous is that? And so 43% of the time he loses his points. It's only 50% of the time, 57% of the time that he wins his points. And you have to understand that a 7% swing in tennis is huge. It's astronomical. The number one player at the, in the world at any given time is usually winning about 55% of their points or so. And to go on a huge tear and just world domination tour for like a year is up around 56. Nadal at the French, 57. And so each individual percentage point above 50% is huge in tennis. And so the way that plays out in a more macro sense, if you look at a, kind of a comparison or analysis of match win percentages, it's really fascinating. And I, this is the first time I ever looked at this, and I, I hope you take away as much as I did from it. So I, I went and looked at the number one player in the world, number 25 player in the world, number 100 player in the world, and number 200 player in the world. And I took a look at what their win-loss percentage is for their career. So number one, right now, Novak Djokovic. He has won 877 times and he's lost 184 times. So that means that 17% of the time that he walks out onto the court, he wins the match. And I believe that this is what tennis players, for some reason, deep down, this is their assumption of how tennis should be. And I think part of this is just the fact that there's such a spotlight differential between Rafa and Roger and Novak and Serena and the whole rest of the field on both sides. We kind of fixate on those superstars and everybody else just kind of gets lost in the shuffle to a certain degree. And for sure, if you're outside the top 20 or outside the top 30, 
most tennis fans don't even know who you are if you're outside the top 20 or top 30. And so there's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of tennis players in the world that have recognition, that have that kind of success, and then there's everybody else. And so these numbers I'm about to share with you are going to really illuminate that. So Djokovic, 17% of the time he loses. Number 25 player in the world right now has been as high as number three in the world. His nickname is Baby Fed, uh, Grigor Dimitrov. He's been as high as number three in the world. He's won millions and millions of dollars. And over the course of his career, he's won 298 matches. And he's lost 196 matches. That means 40% of the time that Dimitrov walks out onto a tennis court, he loses. And he's world-renowned. I mean, he's one of the more popular players over the last decade or so. I mean, he's certainly not outside the top, you know, 15 or 20. If you follow tennis, you know who he is. You even know his nickname. And he's been ranked extremely high. He's made tons of money. And he loses 40% of the time. Only 60% of the time does he actually win his match. Okay, now let's drop down to number 100 in the world. This person has been ranked as high as number 19, but is currently number 100. They've won four titles on the ATP Tour and over $10 million in prize money over the course of his career. And this is Granolers. He's been around for a while because he's kind of a grinder, not like an elite, you know, everybody knows his name type player. But if you follow the game, you definitely know who he is. And over the course of his career, he's won 202 times. And he's lost 249 times. That means that as the number 100 player in the world, as of right now, with over $10 million in prize money, Granollers has lost 55% of the time that he stepped out onto the court. Over 50%. He's going to lose more than he wins on average when he walks out onto the court to play singles. Okay, and now hopefully you see a trend here. So number one in the world, 17% of the time loses. Number 25, 40% of the time loses. Number 100, 55% of the time loses. Number 200 in the world, out of how many people are, are on planet Earth? Like 8 billion? Out of 8 billion people, the number 200 person in the world at the sport of tennis He's been as high as number 110 in the world, and during his career, he's won $1.5 million in prize money, over a million dollars. His name is Peter Polanski. He's from Canada. And over the course of his career, what do you think? He's won 19 ATP singles matches, and he's lost 45. That's 70% losses. And by the way, he hasn't won a singles match in 2019. A lot of his prize money is probably playing doubles, I'm guessing. Honestly, I didn't I didn't, you know, dig super super deep. I was just looking at singles and just looking at the ATP. But number 1 in the world, 17% of the time loses. Number 25, 40% of the time loses. Number 100, 55% of the time loses. Number 200, 70% of the time loses. Think about that. How does that shape your perspective? of how you view the game. The number 200 ranked person in the, on the planet loses 70% of the time. So let me ask you something, frankly, and be honest with yourself, please. 
Picture your local courts. Picture the hierarchy at your local courts, kind of the pecking order. It might be your club. It might be your courts, what, the facility you play at or the, the park or whatever it is. Are you a Djokovic? You know, are you the person everybody looks up to and you, you kind of have the name as the, the, um, the big shot on your local courts? Are you a Dimitrov? You know, kind of definitely upper echelon, but hasn't really ever broken, free, uh, broken through as being like one of the elite players. Are you a Granolers? Like somebody that has some name recognition, but if you don't follow the game super closely, you've probably never heard of. Or a Polanski, somebody that, you know, no disrespect to uh, Peter Polanski. I would take the talent in his, you know, little finger on his uh, non-dominant hand personally but this for me is a perfect illustration of the distribution of wins and losses in any large group of tennis players it's the same in your local area there's a few people who win a ton because they just have that level of talent and ability at their given level or in their given geographical area where they're able to just kind of sit on top and smack everybody else down that tries to climb up the mountain. And there's a bunch of people in the middle who are kind of successful part of the time, but not so much, you know, the other time it's kind of your Dimitrov kind of 50, 50 coin flip. And then you've got a lot of people that lose a lot and it's the same kind of distribution. Most people in most parts of the country, most parts of the world have a whole lot of people that play above them in level and a whole lot of people who play below them. And day-to-day, match-to-match, there's a lot of variables at play that determines who wins and who loses, most of which are not even in our control. And so if you chart the average result of the average tennis player, at best, it's about a coin flip. And if you're kind of towards the bottom of the pack, you at first kind of do a lot of losing. And this just kind of comes with the territory with playing tennis. So this is my first kind of point. And I, I was really excited to share this. I've never done a, you know, a little uh, analysis like this before of the top couple hundred tennis players in the world. And I believe very strongly that this same kind of grading curve, if you will, comes down to those of us who play the game at the amateur level as well. And so hopefully this is illuminating to you and it gives you a lot of respect for those players outside of the top 25, certainly outside the top 100 that are working day after day after day and they're losing more than they're winning and they're trying to make a living of this. (laughs) And while the rest of us supposedly are playing for fun, but if our perspective of the game isn't in very good alignment, then it's easy to be very hard on ourselves when the truth is, the fact of the matter is, losing happens a ton in the game of tennis at all levels. So this brings us to my second part where I want to talk to you about failure. And then we're going to talk about practical evaluation. That's where we're really going to get to the the nuts and bolts, the kind of practical application of what to look for and how to come away with value from losses. First of all, we need to redefine failure. One of my favorite quotes recently from a good friend of mine, Michael Morelli, who's a fitness expert online. I'm not sure where he got this. Maybe he got this from, from, from somebody, but I first heard it from him. He likes to say, it's not failure, it's feedback. In other words, it's not that 
you're a bad person and this was a waste of time, you've just simply collected more data on whatever it is that you're putting effort in on. And you can use that data to optimize, do a little better next time, and that's part of the process. Failure is only when you've stopped trying. And it's like, well, okay, I'm done. I failed, I'm walking away, and that's the end of it. But with tennis, there really is no destination per se. There is no ultimate thing that we're looking to get to. At least I don't recommend that. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Another quote that I love from from Thomas Edison, he reportedly tried over 10,000 variations of the light bulb before one actually worked. He had over 10,000 failures. And he was kind of barbed by this by a journalist and and said, hey, how does it feel to have failed over 10,000 times? And Edison said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. And I love that perspective. And in the grand scheme of things, as a tennis player, you shouldn't view losing as failure. And this is where I did the cliche presenter thing. And I went to dictionary.com and I typed in the word failure. Actually, uh, fail. I'm sorry. The definition of fail is to fall short of success or achievement in something expected, attempted, desired, or approved. Again, one more time. To fail is to fall short of success or achievement in something expected, attempted, desired, or approved. Now, I'm going to break down four of those words really quick. To fall short of success, what is success to you as a tennis player? Answer that question for me in your head. Really, What's the first thing that comes to mind? This is an excellent question that Tim Ferriss answers on, or I'm sorry, asks of his guests on his podcast constantly. I, I think just about every guest he's asked, what does success mean to you? And it means very different things to, to different people. I'm not sure I've heard the same answer twice from, from different guests. And so you can define this. What, what is successful for you in tennis? How do you measure that? And what measuring stick are you putting yourself next to? If you equate winning with success and losing with failure, you're going to be unhappy in tennis. Unless you are Federer or Nadal, and even then, I, I guarantee you, when Federer loses you know, at Wimbledon in the finals, that's a low, low, low. I mean, that's a, that's, it would be difficult for him to describe probably the depths of how terrible of a feeling that is. But he doesn't have to deal with that very often compared to your Polanskis or your you know, Granolers who are losing. Even um, Dimitrov, he loses more than he wins. So can you imagine, even for them, if they equated winning with success and losing with failure, even though they're getting paid to play, and that's, you know, they have to go home and stop playing if they don't ever win. So to a certain degree, they are measuring it that way. But if that's your only measuring stick, then you're going to be unhappy very, very frequently, especially if you're in the middle of the pack at your local courts. So what if success in tennis could be bigger than winning or losing? What if you didn't have to rely on just that one metric? What if you were successful on any given day when you're challenging yourself, when you leave your comfort zone and you make things a little bit uncomfortable? 
What if you counted that as a, as, a, as a success, no matter what the ultimate outcome was? Even if you didn't make a ball, or even if you didn't win the match, <clears throat> if you just simply challenged yourself that day, what if that's how you defined success? How about abandoning a bad habit for a better one? Can that be success? I mean, is that moving in the right direction? I, I would absolutely say it could be. How about improving your outlook or your perspective or your, your mental game? What if you play a match where your uh, mentality throughout the match, your mindset throughout the match was really solid and you were sharp and focused and, and you were able to really stay nice and, and um, focused in on what you were trying to do? Could that be a successful day? I would say absolutely. How about giving your best effort on any given match? Could that be a success? Even if you lose the match, could you still be successful? I think the answer is absolutely yes. If you're only measuring success or failure based on win or loss, first of all, it's a small, it's one, one possible way of evaluating your performance. Just one out of potentially hundreds. And secondly, it's a relatively small part of the game. There's so much more to the game than just the win-loss column. There's so much more that we're investing in, so much more that we're working hard on, so many more ways to evaluate and judge how good of a job we're doing. And so if the loss supersedes everything else on, on you know, that chart of potential ways to evaluate how we did, how fair are we really being with ourselves? How how healthy is our perspective really on the game? And so that's success. Remember, to fail, to fall short of success. So what, how are you defining success? How are you measuring success? You need to answer that for yourself. Because if you're going to call a loss a failure, then it means you're probably defining your success just on that one metric. And I would strongly argue that's not a healthy way of looking at it. Okay, to fall short of success or achievement in something expected. Let me ask you another question. What do you expect? Do you expect to win every time you walk on the court? Do you expect to win most of the time? Do you expect to win half the time? And remember those stats. Like Where, where do you honestly measure up in the grand scheme of things uh, among your peer group? Are you at, at the very top of the pecking order? Are you in the middle or are you more towards the bottom? None of those is, is a bad thing. It's just the reality of kind of where we find ourselves and at any given point in time on the, the journey of our career, depending on the strength of the ge- geographical area where we happen to live. There's so many different variables. One is not necessarily any better or worse than the other, but you have to be honest with yourself and have a clear picture and honest perspective of where you stand. So what, what do you expect? Hopefully, I gave you a little bit of perspective when I talked about the the winning percentages of world-class players. So, to fall short of success or achievement in something expected, attempted, desired, or, or, or approved. What are you attempting? What are your goals? Are your goals to win every time? Like, is that your focus with your goals? Oh, I, I want to have a, you know, I know I'm going to play 10 matches this season and I better win eight of them. Because that's, that's my goal. That's what I'm shooting for. Is that what you're attempting? Or is what you're attempting, are your goals process-focused? Like I was talking about before, to challenge yourself, to give a solid effort, to, to be focused, uh, to leave bad habits, to leave your comfort zone. 
Is that what you're attempting? Is that the, the middle of the bullseye of the target you're aiming for? Or are you just fixated on wins and losses? And finally, what do you desire? The last time I'll read this, fail. To fall short of success or achievement in something expected, attempted, desired, or approved. What is it that you desire, honestly? Does your ego need that win-loss column to be positive, to be solid, or are you satisfied by the process in and of itself? Is the journey alone fulfilling for you, or do you really deeply desire those wins, or else you, you just can't be satisfied and you can't be happy? So these four questions, I think, are critical. Number one, what is success to you? Number two, what do you honestly expect? Number three, what are you attempting What are your goals? And number four, what do you desire? You have to answer those questions. And if your answers to those questions aren't healthy or aren't aligned with reality or don't take into account a wide enough or deep enough perspective of the game and where you fit into it, then you're going to be crushed by losses again and again and again. It's going to, it's going to, make you wonder if it's worth it over and over and over again if those things are out of alignment. And so I, for me, this is critically important for the passionate tennis player. Without good alignment in these areas, you'll be unhappy more than you're happy. And you'll end up wondering if it's all worth it or not, which is exactly where I found myself back in college. For me, tennis very much is an allegory for life. It goes in parallel It's just as vast, it's just as deep, it's just as meaningful. And ultimately, at the end of the day, winning and losing matches is a small, small part of the overall journey. There's so much more to it than just whether you win or you lose a match. I could see somebody arguing against that if we're talking about a professional player, but I'm pretty confident there's no professional players in in my audience. If if there is, I guess that would be pretty fascinating uh, to know. But 99% of us, I'm pretty confident about that, are not professional players. We're, we're playing, assumedly, because we love it, because we have a passion for it, because we want to enjoy it more deeply, because we want to understand it more deeply. And so if our ultimate metric is the win and the loss, we're selling ourselves so, so short. So there's kind of the perspective and the mentality now let's talk about practical evaluation. So this is how I recommend you evaluate your performance and how you pick out the things that you should be focused on moving forwards after each match. First of all, list first and foremost. I've got a couple questions for you here that you can answer. You can write these down on your notebook or put them on a piece of paper, put them in, on your tablet or on your phone in a, in a note or in a message to yourself. First of all, after your value, after your match, after a loss, or after a win too, list your top five successes for the match. And this is mandatory. I don't care how bad you played. <clears throat> I don't care how much you feel like you should have won. I don't care how weak you think the player was that you just played. You have five successes in this match, no matter how poorly you played. It might be something as simple as, you know what, I was sick. I was feeling crappy, and I showed up today. (laughs) I didn't default the match. I didn't phone it in. I showed up, and I still gave my best effort. That's two. There's two right there. I showed up, and I tried the best I could, even though 
I was way below what I know I'm capable of today. I had a text conversation with a, a different student recently where he told me about a match that he played against a really strong opponent that used to beat him really handily. And on this particular day, if if his tactics uh, weren't played really well, then he would have lost very quickly. But instead, he, I don't remember the actual score. I think it was like 6-2, 6-3 or something like that. And he said on that particular day, he just had to be satisfied with the fact that he lost more slowly than he would have normally. That's a win. That That's a success. Making it more difficult for somebody to win instead of easier for them to win, is a, that's a big success. When somebody could potentially beat you easily, but you make it difficult for them, that's a win. I mean, not, not literally, like you lost the match, but it's a process success. Because he remained focused and he kept good perspective of what he was doing, he was able to come away feeling satisfied with that and feeling like he had he had a win and he had something that he could be proud of, even though he lost the match. And when you start to have that kind of outlook and that kind of perspective and mentality, the game of tennis can be so much more enjoyable, especially when you lose. So first of all, list your top five successes for the match. No matter how poorly you lost it, you can come up with five things. I promise you, no matter how simple or basic they might be. Number two, what strokes performed worse than expected? Maybe your forehand's normally a weapon and it just wasn't firing that day, you're missing it, or your backhand usually is your weakness and today it was really your weakness and uh, you just you couldn't even just keep the ball back in play with a rally ball, you were just missing it all over the place. How, I'm sorry, what strokes performed worse than what you expected? And also write down how. Was the that forehand just hitting the net? Or were you floating it long? Was the backhand always drifting wide? Be specific. How were you missing that shot? And also write down any ideas that you might have for why. Oh, I was probably hitting the net because, you know, I tend to really get a little bit tight and flatten my swing out and I lose my margin for error. I bet that's why I was hitting the net on my forehand. It might not be exactly right, but just get your brain working and get it moving, get the juices flowing a little bit and start to do a little bit of problem solving about what potentially might have happened there with with that stroke or those strokes. So that's question number two. What strokes performed worse than expected? Question number three is what patterns did your opponent exploit really easily or really repeatedly or readily? Why did they do that? So for, for me as a left-handed player, a pattern that I hate is my opponent's forehand across to my backhand. When I lose, a lot of times, that's a pattern that they exploit over and over again. <clears throat> so write down whatever those patterns might have been. Maybe it was a drop shot lob, you know, and you don't like running forwards and hitting overheads. Write down what those patterns were and also write down why did they do that? What was the opportunity that they were looking to exploit. And finally, what skill or tactic kept you from neutralizing that pattern? What was it that you were missing that if you had it, you could have neutralized the pattern and overcome it? So that's kind of the patterns and the tactics part of it. So again, we have the the five successes, write that down first, then technical, strokes, what lets you down, then patterns, what patterns were a big liability that you couldn't neutralize, and then finally, number four, what mindset or mental toughness pitfalls did you fall into? 
how was it that you were mentally not as sharp as you could have been? And if at all possible, just give and this would be ideal. Do this whole process like at a coffee shop afterwards, or if there's a lounge at the club where you played, or stop at a gas station, get some gas, and sit down for 10 minutes and write this out. I promise you, you'll come away with a ton of insight and a ton of practical things that you can do to work on your game every single time you play worse than what you were hoping for. So the fourth thing is what mindset or mental toughness pitfalls did you fall into? And do a little bit of reflecting on it and ask yourself the question, what triggered that? What was it specifically that caused me to tighten up in that way or that caused me to get angry like that? Or that caused me to lose focus and all of a sudden get really sloppy. And you might not have a really specific, you know, solid answer, but do your best. And again, just kind of get your brain uh, working on it. And even if it's kind of a background task, asking yourself these questions will help you problem solve uh, when you're not necessarily consciously focusing on it. How could you neutralize it better next time, those mental toughness issues? So... Now that you've asked yourself and you've evaluated in those four ways, biggest successes, technique, patterns, and mindset, take the top three elements that you feel most contributed to the loss and then consider adding them to your training focus. Hopefully you already have some kind of routine for training, some kind of maybe you have a day or maybe two days a week where you go and work on your game. Think about adding those focus points into your rotation during those training days. And by the way, if those three aren't more important than what you're already working on in training, then simply leave them on the back burner and you can come back to them later. Key here is you don't overwhelm yourself. If you if you really sit down, if you spend a half hour, 45 minutes and really think through these questions, you'll probably come away with quite a lot. And it's tempting, especially for anybody who's listening to this show, to go and try to work on all of it. Don't do that. We've discussed in depth a lot over the last couple months how focusing on more than one thing at a time is, is something that will keep you stuck. Having too many irons in the fire will keep you from improving. So don't take this big list of potential things to work on and feel like, oh, I got to find a solution to all of these right now and I need to go drill every, you know, my forehand, my backhand, my overhead, my, my backhand volley, my drop shot, and my inside out forehand, and all of this all at the same time. Don't do that. Consider these elements with perspective alongside anything else that you were already working on. And it could be that it was just a couple of minor things that caused the loss that day. If it's a couple major things, then you might want to consider rotating out something you were already working on for one of these new things, because it needs a little bit of time and attention. You have to evaluate and do the best you can to prioritize and not overwhelm yourself. But bottom line, be fully satisfied that you had success in the match and you've positively now identified what it is that you can work on to be better next time. And now this is the process. These are big wins that come from that loss. This is the gold that you can uncover in a losing situation. Now you know exactly what to focus on, potentially already how to focus on it, and you can start the process of refining those elements, shoring them up, making them stronger, and becoming a better tennis player. And then the next time you lose, guess what? You have the opportunity to do this again. Also, guess what? 
you can do this when you win, too. <laughs> You're going to make a bunch of mistakes when you win. Remember, Nadal at the French Open, 43% of his points he lost. He could learn from every single one of those lost points, and he does. That's why he's so successful. That's why world-class players are so successful. It's a constant process of putting yourself out there, competing, observing, learning from that feedback, learning from the data, then refining what you, what you went in with, improving, and then putting yourself back out there again. I want nothing more than for you to follow that process and find joy and find fulfillment in that process on its own. No longer needing the validation of the win-loss column to tell you that you're a good tennis player. If you can move just one step in that direction, I'll be extremely, extremely happy for you. Thanks for listening. And if you think anybody you know could value, could find value in this episode today, please do me a favor and share it with them. Send them a text message, send them a Facebook message, tag them on Facebook or Instagram, wherever it is. Can you do me a favor and just share it with somebody else who you think could really find a lot of value in this episode? Thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your attention and keep up the great work with your game. For more free game improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.